0: Being here for another episode of the Bottom Up Revolution podcast, where we share the stories of the Strong Towns movement in action. If you're joining me for the first time and are wondering what is Strong Towns, uh, head to strongtowns.org to find out more, or just keep listening to the show and you'll start to get the idea. I'm Rachel, Program Director. Let's start with a question: If you wanted to decrease crime in your neighborhood, what would you do? Say there's a park where people tend to hang out selling, doing drugs, getting into trouble, making the rest of the neighborhood feel unsafe. Would you set up more police patrols, install brighter lighting, maybe cut down the bushes that protect the park from public view? These are all typical tactics that cities use. But today's guests tried a very different and very much more strong towns approach. He and the organizations that he leads, the Likens Neighborhood Association and Neighborhood Legal Support of Kansas City, have been combating crime in Kansas City neighborhoods through activity and development. Greg Lombardi is a practicing lawyer and has been using legal strategies to help a neighborhood procure abandoned homes and rehab them. His organization serves as a facilitator, a convener, and a liaison for development helping bring together the financial resources to make these projects happen and giving primary focus to listening to what residents want to see in that neighborhood. They're also spurring neighborhood activities like soccer practice and local events in that now formerly dangerous park. When we see disinvested neighborhoods, we shouldn't just throw up our hands and conclude that they're on a downward trajectory that can't be stopped. Lombardi says, quote, there are a lot of problems in neighborhoods that are solvable. The work happening in the Likens neighborhood of Kansas City is already serving as a pilot project for development and crime reduction in other neighborhoods too. In this interview, you'll see the incremental small bets approach that Lombardi and the neighbors involved in this project are employing. You'll also learn about how so many challenges and opportunities in our neighborhoods are interconnected, public space, housing, safety, local businesses, and more. So here's my conversation with Greg Lombardi. Greg Lombardi, thank you for joining me for this episode of the Bottom Up Revolution podcast. We are glad to have you on the show.
1: Ah, it's great to be here.
0: Can you start by telling us a little about yourself and your involvement in your community in Kansas City?
1: I like to say that I'm a reformed lawyer or a largely reformed lawyer that I've been in practice uh, since 1986. Slowly throughout the practice, I've uh, become more and more and more involved in community development and less and less involved in the law. Although I occasionally still sue people just because sometimes I got to get it out of my system. And sometimes really people need to be sued. Uh, I started off in private practice and was in private practice for from 86 to 2001. Uh, so 15 years, and then I became the, the deputy executive director for Legal Aid of Western Missouri here in Kansas City, and then ultimately the executive director for eight years at Legal Aid. And one of uh, the best project of, projects of Legal Aid of Western Missouri uh, is its community development project. It really is one of the best projects of that type in the country, and it's been uh, run for years by a gentleman by the name of Michael Duffy, who just retired this year. And he has been brilliant. And he's, uh, among other things, created what's called the Abandoned Housing Act in Missouri, which allows a not-for-profit organization to take over uh, blighted and abandoned properties and turn them into good quality housing. And uh, in the last 20 years, uh, there have been over 1,000 Abandoned Housing Act cases brought in Kansas City by Legal Aid of Western Missouri. And it really has made a fantastic difference in the housing stock in Kansas City. So when I retired from Legal Aid of Western Missouri, I started a little not-for-profit that works hand-in-hand with Legal Aid on blighted and abandoned housing. But my not-for-profit focuses on just a single neighborhood. And our goal is to um, focus on a uh, small area. We started with a nine-block area. And Bring as many resources as possible uh, into that area to assist in blight remediation and empowering the neighborhood to have a vision for community development for the neighborhood and implement that vision.
0: Yeah, I love it. So what led you to choose that neighborhood and like what what were the big challenges you saw in that community?
1: Well so I, to be honest, it was really a little bit of a random choice to start with. I got input from a bunch of different organizations, but there are over a 100 neighborhoods in Kansas City. The things that really attracted me to Lykins were, one, the location is fantastic. It's just two and a half miles from downtown Kansas City, um, which has a major housing uh, shortage like many downtowns in uh, throughout the country. It also has bus lines that go directly into downtown. Um, the neighborhood is also tremendously diverse. Uh, it's a refugee resettlement area. Uh, it's 50% Latino. The neighborhood elementary school, as of the last time I heard, there are 19 languages spoken in the school. There is one kindergarten class where every child in the class speaks a different language. And it was also a neighborhood that very much values its diversity and didn't want to gentrify. All of those things were very attractive. And also the neighborhood association was highly collaborative, which is not always the case with neighborhood associations. And so all of those things were um, wonderful strengths to the neighborhood. It also had a lot of blighted properties. That was helpful as well.
0: So what has been your approach then to helping uh, remediate those properties? And it sounds like you guys are actively like is your nonprofit acquiring them and doing the rehabbing, or do you have a lot of partners involved in this? So we want to be a facilitator and not a rehabber ourselves.
1: We, we figure we, we add more to the equation if we bring in lots of partners and not do the work or profit from the work ourselves. So we kind of stay out of competition with other rehabbers and builders that way. So we bring in as many partners as we can. We have 25 rehabbers and builders working on the project. And so, again, the idea is to empower them. And what we did is we started off with a urban planner coming in and doing a property-by-property property analysis of the neighborhood. Working with the neighborhood, we used that, uh, plus the input of uh, 17 rehabbers and builders who tour the neighborhood to identify the focus area. And once that was done, uh, we worked with the urban planner and with some rehabbers and builders to develop building guidelines for the neighborhood, which all uh, rehabbers and builders have to comply with to be in the project. Next, every month working with codes inspectors, with neighborhood residents, um, with our staff, we put out a list of potentially acquirable blighted and abandoned properties in the neighborhood. And it's gotten now so, I mean, it started off as a very long list, and now it's down to about maybe 10 or 12 properties we put out a month. And so rehabbers, if they're interested in acquiring one of these properties, they have to apply to the Neighborhood Association to be approved to do that. And their application has to say how much money they're going to spend, uh, whether the house will become owner-occupied or rental property, whether they'll be using Uh, workers from the neighborhood, what their timetable of development will be, and if they're at at the level of sophistication to do so, uh, plans, their actual plans for the work on the property.
0: Mm -hmm. And are most of these like just their rehab, they're not teardowns? Is that correct? That is correct.
1: We have not done any demolition and rebuild. And we can talk about that, but generally that is, uh, that's highly cost inefficient to do that. Rehabbing is much more cost efficient. So anyway, the neighborhood association actually gets to decide whether to accept or reject an application. A lot of times uh, we give feedback to the applicant as to uh, what the neighborhood would like to see different from what they, they're suggesting. And actually it's gotten to the point where probably 20 to 25% of the applications are competitive applications. There are two or more people applying. And so the neighborhood gets to to decide which of those applications are the most consistent with its vision for development in the neighborhood.
0: Would you see some you know, huge project that's being proposed that feels outsized for the neighborhood? Or why would someone choose to, how do they make a choice about which proposal to accept or reject?
1: Well, so the the neighborhood has priorities. So, for example, uh, the neighborhood prefers owner occupancy as opposed to rental housing. Uh, They also, even above owner occupancy, they uh, prefer service-providing organizations. So we've awarded properties to Habitat for Humanity and Catholic Charities. There's a wonderful organization called Healing House that provides housing for recovering drug and alcohol uh, addicts. And so we've awarded a property to them over a for-profit rehabber who wanted to uh, turn it into a kind of a high-end house.
0: I see, yeah.
1: So, but anyway, the, uh, the rehabbers and builders inter- actually enter into a contract with the Neighborhood Association uh, stating what they're going to do, how much they're going to spend, the timetable for doing it. And we also have a very talented rehabber who monitors all of their work uh, on a uh, every other month basis to make sure that they're staying up to their commitment.
0: I'm so impressed by all the different people that are involved in this and how it seems very rooted in what the neighborhood and people who live there want. Um, that's that's excellent.
1: And we really think for that for it to work, it really has to be driven by the neighborhood and it can't be just somebody from the outside saying, ah. Oh, I've got a great idea for how I'm gonna improve your neighborhood,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. You said that the homes you're acquiring are either abandoned or blighted. I imagine that you know many of them are literally like no one's in there, but do you sometimes encounter that there are you know squatters or people who are homeless that are that are temporarily staying and like how do you navigate that?
1: Uh, and that happens not tremendously often but fairly often. And so we have a, a social worker on staff and we have a project to work with people without housing. And so what we do is if there's a squatter in a, in a house, uh, we will go and talk with them and we'll say, you can't stay in this house anymore, but we can work to get you other housing. We can also uh, work to get you access to other resources. Uh, so, for example, a lot of times people have not gotten their COVID payments. And those those COVID payments can make a giant difference in somebody's life, and so we can apply for COVID payments for them. We essentially negotiate a deal with uh, with any squatters and get them to move.
0: Makes sense. So I have to ask, you know, where does the funding come for this work? Is it you know buying the initial home? Where does that funding come from? And then um, eventually, I imagine the developers are selling. Are they selling to people that have the capital to, you know, make a down payment and things? How does that all work?
1: So a lot of different kind of layers to the funding. In terms of our work, we have a broad array of, of funders, and uh, we've been really lucky because this is a time when lots of people are excited about community development work, and so there's been a lot of funding that's available, and so. I would say the city of Kansas City funds about 20% of the, the project, foundations uh, probably provide another 60% of the funding, and then private individuals, another 20%. In terms of funding for the actual rehab work, we, we don't fund any of that. So the, the idea is we facilitate things for the rehabbers, but they finance the rehab themselves. I would note that the city has provided small subsidies, the biggest of which was uh, $8,500 for a house that the city was about to demolish and spend $12,000 on demolition. And so we convinced them after some pretty strong argument back and forth to allow us to rehab the house rather than having them demolish it. And instead of paying $12,000, they provided $8, subsidy, uh $8,500 subsidy to the rehabber. Generally the subsidies from the city are anywhere from two to $4,000 though.
0: So it seems like it's a pretty, you know, financially sustainable uh, model to make this happen. It's not relying on like one huge funder or like just totally government dollars where a program might get cut next year or something.
1: That's correct. And we do our best to kind of diversify the funding.
0: Yeah, that's really impressive. What are some of the results that you've been most proud of so far in this effort?
1: First is community engagement, which is really essential to us. Uh, when we started off, uh, the Lycans Neighborhood Association, in a neighborhood of 4,000 people, uh neighborhood association meeting was six white people sitting around a table complaining about trash and, and blighted properties. And... And they really they understood that they were not representative. And they actually they had yard signs out in Spanish inviting people to come to the neighborhood association meetings. And that just uh, was not effective. And so one of the things that we did at the start of the project was we got a grant to hire neighborhood liaisons who are people from diverse communities within the neighborhood who were well connected in the neighborhood, and go out and, advocate for people to get engaged in the project. And, and so pre-COVID, a typical neighborhood association meeting would uh, have 30 to 40 people in it. Uh, it would be diverse, although not as representationally diverse as we would like. But we also had Spanish and Swahili interpreters at every meeting who were used. We were getting great input from lots of different sides. COVID has thrown a giant wrench in the works on that. and. Uh, so, we don't have uh, near the diversity of representation uh, that we'd like to, but we still have 15 to 20 people uh, with different backgrounds showing up for the meetings. That's one thing. God, there are a whole bunch of different things. I, th- I think part of it is all the partnerships, that we have fantastic relationships with uh, the city codes uh, inspector, the, c- the planning department, the housing department, the police department, uh, the Parks Department. We have a partnership with a, a not-for-profit uh, that is a bunch of architects who did a master plan for the Lycan Square Park, uh, which the Parks Department has adopted as its own, and we're implementing that. We have partnerships with, as I said before, with uh, 24, 25 rehabbers and builders who are working on the project, and through that, And through all of kind of the work of the project, we now have 110 properties in the neighborhood that are within the project. And I guess, really, the proudest thing is that uh, we estimate that by the end of next year, we're going to run out of all abandoned and blighted houses in the neighborhood. And so we're going to move on to another neighborhood. So we're in the process right now of selecting our next uh, partner neighborhood.
0: So for those homes that are within the, the umbrella of the project now, are they in various phases of completion and rehab? Yes,
1: and you know I would say that the rehab process has been slow. So we have, I think, five houses occupied three years in, so it's a, it is a long process. And I, I figure uh, that the next time around, it'll be a lot faster. For many reasons. One, all the relationships are built. We have uh, our building guidelines, which took six months, and we didn't want to have people rehabbing or building without building guidelines. Um, so, I mean, it's been a slow process. As we go forward, I hope it'll be a lot faster. One of the things we're doing, too, is that we are kind of open book with everything we have. So, Anybody wants access to uh, the information or documents we use, we're happy to share them with anybody.
0: Very cool. And regarding those 24, 25 developers that you're connected with, how did those connections come to be? Like, did you know one lead to another? Or did you already have a lot of context in that um, field? So, uh, a lot of them were
1: uh, rehabbers who were already working with Legal Aid of Western Missouri. So I knew them from that. And then it's been kind of a one by one network that's been built and that people spread the word by word of mouth and people hear the project and get in contact with me. Earlier this year, we actually closed down the project for new rehabbers because we had so many. Yeah, again, a good problem. When we open up to a new neighborhood, uh, we're gonna need more rehabbers, so we'll get back open again.
0: And I know from the materials that you sent me ahead of time, you haven't just been involved in the home rehabilitation and renovation, but also doing other stuff in the neighborhood. I think there was a walking trail and like a soccer program for kids. Um, Tell us a little bit about those and what's the impetus behind moving beyond just the home rehab?
1: Well, really kind of the impetus for the whole project was not only community revitalization, uh, but also violence prevention the neighborhood uh, was really a a hotspot and one of the worst hotspots for crime in the city of Kansas City. And the Lycan Square Park was uh, kind of ground zero for that. And one of the things we saw, and I think this is fairly common for urban parks, is uh, there got to be a lot of drug dealing and prostitution in the, the park. And so people didn't feel comfortable living right next to the park. So Houses were empty, then those houses got vandalized, Uh, some of them caught fire, a bunch of them had to be demolished. And if you look at a map of the Lycan Square Park in Kansas City, I mean, it's a pretty big park. It's about the size of two normal city blocks. And when we started the project, I think there are only five houses facing the park with people living in them. And so there are no eyes on the park. And again, when there are no eyes on the park, it becomes easier for it to be even worse of a drug dealing and human trafficking site.
0: And then even fewer people want to live there.
1: Right, so it's it's spiraled. And so what we really want to do is not only have houses built uh, and rehabbed around the park so uh, there are eyes on the park, but also to build activity in the park. That's a, a big part of what we wanted to do, to bring that park back to life and to make it less hospitable for drug dealing and human trafficking. And so there's a old vacant lot, large vacant lot. Uh, it's a one acre lot uh, that's just north of the park that used to be the Lykens Elementary School. And there's, uh, it was torn down in the 1990s and there's still a stoop in front of it. And it used to be a major hangout for drug dealers and drug users. And So as the project has gone along, the number of people hanging out there has dwindled. And finally, when we started having soccer practices early uh, last summer, um, on the first day of soccer practices, one of the guys who was hanging out on the stoop went to the coach of the soccer team and said, what's going on here? And the coach said, hey, we're having soccer practice. We we have five teams that are going to be practicing here uh, throughout the week. It's a great thing. And the guy looked at him and, and said, huh, well, I guess we'll go someplace else. And, and so the drug dealers are now gone from around the park. So we are getting our desired result. Now, it's something that we, have, uh, we recognize that when we displace a drug dealer or somebody without housing, that doesn't mean they disappear. Those drug dealers will yeah, go, go someplace else. So that's something we have to be mindful
0: of. Yeah, but lots of progress, really impressive. So you mentioned earlier um, that you're hoping to replicate the model in other neighborhoods. Um, are you actively like looking for that next neighborhood or already um, have that one lined up?
1: So we're in the actively looking and getting close to deciding uh, stage. Uh, we created a, a task force, a really fantastic task force uh, that it included the head of the planning department from the city, the head of the housing department from the city, our neighborhood codes inspector. Uh, there's a group called the Center for Neighborhoods uh, at uh, the University of Missouri Kansas City here in town, um, and she's on the task force as well. So uh, we decided to keep it close to the original neighborhood, and we're down to three neighborhoods. And hopefully, uh, by the middle of January, we'll be deciding. And really, we want it, again, to be not so much our selecting a neighborhood as uh, our negotiating with potential neighborhoods to kind of figure out which neighborhood wants to be a part of the project and is a really good fit for the project. And we want the vision for how the project develops to be really something that comes from uh, the neighborhood itself rather than from us saying, hey, here's our successful project, we're bringing it to your neighborhood.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. You're bringing the model and the concept and the connections, but letting them take the lead.
1: Right. We provide the support and kind of the engine, and it's driven by the neighborhoods is a better way of putting it.
0: Yeah. To kind of bring it back full circle, um, how does your legal background play into this? You know, the organization is called Neighborhood Legal Support What's the role of like a law experience and background in making these sorts of projects happen?
1: Well, so there there's a big legal aspect uh, to our work. The acquiring the properties is done primarily through litigation and negotiation. And so through the Abandoned Housing Act, as well as there's a, a fairly recently passed Missouri statute called the Civil Nuisance uh, Statute. or And so those are resources. Um I also, you know, deal with what are called quiet title issues. So if there uh, is a mortgage that has uh, been sitting on a property for 25 years and never has been released, then I can bring a case against the bank that holds the mortgage, getting them to release the, the mortgage.
0: So to close this out here, um, I always ask, you know, what advice do you have for someone that's listening that is really intrigued by this idea and might want to. Do something similar in their community. Is it something you think is possible in other other cities, even if they don't have quite that same um, law on the books about um, abandoned housing?
1: Yeah, and I would say it's definitely possible. And for me, the thing that's really exciting about the project is I spent the first oh 25 years of my legal career doing uh, corporate litigation and as well as civil rights litigation and. I love that, I'm kind of competitive by my nature, but I never saw at the end of the day any fruits of my handiwork. I mean, money might exchange hands, people's actions might change, but doing the work that I do now, uh, I get to walk down the street and say, wow, look at this house. It was ready to be demolished before, and now it's a beautiful home for a family. And I get to see on the streets of Lycans children playing, people out walking, people talking to the neighbors. I mean, and I get to spend time, you know, talking with the people uh, in the neighborhood, which I love. Uh, And so what I would say is there are a lot of uh, problems in urban neighborhoods that are solvable. And if somebody has a passion for doing something that uh, makes a difference, makes a community a better place to live, there is work out there and room for that to be done. And so, kind of the one piece of advice, um, a big picture macro piece of advice is that if you're excited about doing something like this, look for opportunities and do it. Because uh, it is, from my perspective, tremendously gratifying work. To me, collaboration building is a gigantic uh, thing. And there are lots of resources and good organizations out there. A lot of them are siloed and not aware of the work that they're doing. So if you have an opportunity to bring lots of different organizations together, that that helps a lot. And also, in a situation like this, I love the idea of instead of having one entity doing all the rehab work or all the new construction, to have... To, to spread it out among lots of different entities, uh, that uh, gives an opportunity to empower a lot of urban entrepreneurs and a lot of the people who are in this project are urban entrepreneurs. Um, and we're building their businesses and supporting them, which I think is a fantastic thing. And also, just from a kind of a health of the project perspective, uh, we call it uh, community development Darwinism, where because we have so many Uh, rehabbers and builders involved in the project. Uh, We get to see who's doing well and who's not doing as well. And so the people who are doing really well, we give them lots more houses. And the people who aren't doing so well, we give them as much assistance as we can. And we we encourage them and support them, but we don't give them any more houses until they're finished with what they're working on.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Well, Greg Lombardi, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Um, where can people find more information about your work in this effort in Kansas City?
1: If you go to lykinsneighborhood.com, L-Y-K-I-N-S, no space or period or anything in, uh, before neighborhood, uh, there is a wonderfully uh, maintained website that's run by our Deputy Executive Director, Gail Lozoff, uh, and has lots of information. And if people have more questions, they can email me uh, at greg at NLS, as in neighborhood legal support for the number four, uh, kc.org.
0: Thanks so much. Greg, appreciate you being on the show. It was great to talk with you today.
1: Rachel, it was a pleasure. Thank you.
0: All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Greg Lombardi. And I want to mention that I got connected to him through our friend, Abby Kinney, who hosts the Upzone podcast, another one of our shows at Strong Towns where Abby and typically Chuck or another guest are discussing a weekly timely news issue. So that's a little plug. Just look up Upzoned in your podcast app and you should be able to find that easily. All right. I'm also reminding you again that The locomotive tour is kicking off in just a couple of weeks. This is a series of Weekly events—they're um, just an hour-long online, really focused on how to take action to build a stronger town. So some of the topics that I'm particularly excited about—and actually, um, let me tell you the ones that I am leading—I'm hosting a session on February 10th called "10 Strong Towns Questions to Ask a Candidate for Local Office." I'm going to be joined by guest Mason Thompson, who you probably heard on a previous episode of this show. Um, he's a city councilor in Bothell, Washington. That one I'm really excited about. The other one that I am hosting is called How to Make Progress When Political Divisions Dominate. That's taking place on March 3rd with guest Michelle Martinez, who is commissioner uh, for the California Transportation Commission. She's also on our advisory board, and she's been connected with strong towns for a long time. Other topics include identifying obstacles to development and making way for small-scale change. That's right up the alley of this week's episode. Um, We've got one that I know is going to be popular called Let's Fix a Dangerous Street in 24 Hours or Less. That one's hosted by Chuck, and uh, he'll be joined by Kristen Nightingale, who is the executive director of Better Block. The very first event on February 3rd is called Four Quick Zoning Reforms for Strong Town." That's going to feature my colleague Daniel, as well as Hazel Boris, who is the president and engineer at Placemakers. So, lots of good stuff starting very soon. The whole package, if you want to attend all eight live events, plus you get access to two bonus pre recorded events. Um, that whole package is just $125. We call that our round trip ticket. Or you can just pick and choose whichever of these sound interesting to you. And tickets for individual events are $25. So, Register now. You don't want to miss the train before it leaves the station. Head to strongtowns.org slash to get your ticket. And I'll include uh, links to that in the show notes, of course. Thanks, as always, to our Strong Towns members. We love hearing from you guys. We love getting to meet you in our new member welcome calls. And we're just so glad for your support that makes this whole movement possible, especially all the new stuff we have kicking off this year in 2022. So thank you to our members. If you want to join that crew of awesome people and support Strong Towns, go to strongtowns.org slash membership. Take care, everybody. We will see you next week for another episode.